Everybody, welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church this morning. Let us begin as we always do by entering into prayer together. Heavenly Father, we are just in awe of what you had to do in order for us to be able to call you our Father. It meant that you had to have your Son leave heaven and take the form and become human as staying God and went to the cross. You allowed your Son to die for us as your enemies and you raised him from the dead. And you did all of that so that it was so simple for a human being to have eternal life, simply by believing the good news about your son. And Father, we ask today that we would be attentive and be able to understand and, and, and then get ready to apply the things that are in your word today. We also pray, Father, for the needs of the saints. And in particular, again, we pray for the persecuted church. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand and worship with us. Good morning again, everybody. Today is the first Sunday of the month, and we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper today at the end of the service. Next Sunday, we will be um, having our, our we will be having our outreach session. I'm stumbling because I thought I had slides on all this, and I guess I didn't. And maybe I maybe I put them in the wrong place. Yes, that's what I did. Guilty. All right. All right. So again. Uh, Next Sunday is Outreach Sunday, and uh, we'll be doing that once a month now. Invite everybody to come. And uh, this week, next week, we're going to be focusing on what has to come first, what ought to come first, which is prayer. We're going to look at how we are to pray in the, every time we gather together concerning outreach, every time we're about to go on an outreach or speak to somebody, and, and then every day to be praying for the lost. The following Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, what many people call Easter. Uh, But uh, we call it Resurrection Sunday because that's really what we're celebrating is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are, in 1 Corinthians, we are hearing from God about the cross of Christ. So we're going to then, on Sunday the 21st, focus on the resurrection of Christ and all that that means and what God had accomplished through that. Also, at the end of this month, Last Sunday, I'm going to be in Arizona to uh, be with Rory Clark and his annual Barah Ministries Conference. So, um, just so you know, um, Elder Steve Pomeroy will be teaching, and he's got a great subject, and um, I'm looking forward to hearing that after I get back myself. Then the following Sunday, see how busy things are going to be around here? The following Sunday, we have Pastor Kingsley. Um, He's Nigerian. He now lives in Edmonton, Canada. And he's going to visit us on the following Sunday. Let me go through that again just to make sure we all got it. All right. Next Sunday, outreach, April 14th. Following Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, April 21st. Following Sunday, Barah Ministries Conference. And the Sunday after that, Pastor Kingsley. Okay? So we got four Sundays in a row. Something really cool going on. All right, so today I want to get back to the fact that um, we're in a new month. And as you know, many of you know, most of you know, that um, we feature a different missionary organization each and every month. This month, it's Grace Prison Ministries. And um, that's their website, www.graceprisons.org. Keithian Starling leads that up. He's been to see us many times. This is a prison ministry. And it's a prison ministry that includes both evangelism, the preaching of the gospel, and then a follow-on of sound Bible teaching. Um, Keithian is totally committed to this, and he works every week, most days of the week, with this ministry. Preaching the gospel. You know, there are a lot of uh, people that move in and out of prisons, so there's always people that are new and need to hear the gospel of Christ if they're not already believers. But then, and he really has a captive audience, which is... Kind of interesting, you know. But then he teaches them with sound Bible teaching. It's, this is done in jails, prisons, and youth detention centers. They just present the gospel as it ought to be presented with simplicity. And then they talk about and teach how to live the Christian life. So important for people who have never been taught that in most cases. Never been taught much at all about how to live um, the right way. So again, they're, they're all about restoring lives. That's what Jesus was all about. He came to seek and save the lost. And people that most people don't want anything to do with, the prison population. 
And they, they show love. They really do. They always bring lots of food and lots of stuff and just, you know, expressions of love. You know, we love what we do. And, and also give them hope, which they badly need, and forgiveness. And a forgiveness that only can be found in Jesus Christ. And again, that is something that prisoners need as well. Many of them are suffering with guilt of what they've done. And they need to understand that at the cross, Jesus Christ died for all their sins. Again, that's their, that's their website, www.graceprison.org. Prisons.org. All right, um, I want to talk about Grace Bible Church Pakistan. That was the um, missionary organization we featured last month. I got their newsletter this week, and I learned about these two kids. Um, they, as, as I know some of you know, they run uh, a home for orphans. It's called the 316 Children's Home. And so Carrie John writes in this newsletter that two of them had been supported for four years by a family in Arizona. But unfortunately, the wife in, in this family, the, the uh, Bishop family, um, she died. And so that's really changed the finances of the family. So they're no longer able to support these two young people. Their names are Shanaz and Yusef. Shanaz is the girl. Yusef is the boy. They lost both parents. They, uh, their mother died giving birth to Yusef. Father passed away later on in a car accident. So they are asking for support for these orphans and for the orphans in general. They, uh, they ask if you want, you can just support them in terms of the general fund that they have for the, for the home. But you can also support a specific orphan and pray on this, but... Um, they ask that if you're going to do that, to adopt them spiritually into your heart and your family as long as you can. Their monthly needs are $50 a month. It covers a lot, as we know. Money goes a lot further in Pakistan than it does in the United States. So this will cover their needs, their monthly needs for food and clothing and toiletries, any school fees and materials such as books and paper and pens, doctor's visits, and also putting money aside for their future wedding. I love that. See, that's something else, you know, it's a demonstration of love. You know, many missionaries and many of us think, well, we'll take care of their needs. But you also want to understand these young kids with hope and a future, and you want to give that to them, so they do that as well. So again, please pray about this. Um, I'm praying about it. I think it's a wonderful thing to do if we can. And um, also mention that they like you to write occasionally to these young people. They really, really gives them a lift, and there's an email address that you can do that on. You can have more of that. But, but I want to give you the address today in case, uh, in case this is something you decide to do. You can just send a check, write a little note the first time so they understand that this is for the 316 um, ministry or this is for Yusef or Shanaz. Should I have their name up there? But this is the address, Grace Bible Church, Pakistan, 4410 West Union Hills Drive. Suite 7, PMB 76, Glendale, Arizona, 85308-1656. That's, that's a long mail address. You know, you've got the suite and the post PMB is a box of some kind. So again, it's 4410 West Union Hills Drive, Suite 7, PMB 76, Glendale, Arizona, 85308-1656. I don't know, you know, I, I don't, we don't always do this in terms of uh, pointing out particular needs of the missionaries, but there's just something about what happened when, uh, when we had that little video about uh, Pakistan and the Grace Bible Church there. Really, I don't know about you all, I do know about some of you that it was really heart-wrenching and very touching and understanding the needs on another level than we did before. So it's partly because of that I want to bring this particular need to your attention. All right, let me see. A couple other announcements before we get started. No, that was it, I think. Yeah. All right, message today. The title is, We Preach Christ Crucified. We Preach Christ Crucified. No, that's wrong. That was last week's. What am I doing? I don't know. I don't have time to type it, but the title of today's message is really The Foolishness of God. All right, the fool, don't pay any attention to the slide. It's the foolishness of God. That's, the, that's uh, the title of today's message. And we're going to turn down to 1 Corinthians 1.25, and we'll begin there. 1 Corinthians 
the foolishness of God. I want to just begin by refreshing our memories about what we saw last Sunday and heard. And we heard, if, yeah, I'll give you a moment to get there, 1 Corinthians one twenty-five. We heard last Sunday from God's word that it's actually the foolishness of the message of the cross that's preached that saves those who believe. So that this foolishness of God, and by the way, when I say that, I mean according to the world. I don't mean really foolish. I mean foolish according to the world. Naturally minded man looks at something and says, that's foolishness. Right? The message of the word of the cross and and that God's son and the Messiah of the Jews, Jesus Christ, was crucified to the world. That's foolishness. How would... How does it make any sense that the Son of God would be crucified on a cross? And and especially in their world where all of their gods were powerful and mighty. And and this this didn't make sense to the world. And he was crucified to save us from our sins. And again, this is foolishness to the worldly wise. It's a death trap to Jewish people who are asking for signs. That wasn't the sign they were expecting. They were expecting signs of the Messiah coming in power. And so all of this was, was baffling at best and, uh, and confusing and an affront to the flesh. And that's what we saw. And it's in the foolishness of the message that all this happens. It, it, it causes people to realize that a lot of what they thought life was all about is really not what life is all about. Because if God's Son has to be crucified to save us from our sins, that tells you the depth of the problem of sinfulness of man. And it also tells you the amazing love of God to do that for us. And that's why those of us who are called, who are believers, this message about the cross reveals things about God. Christ crucified reveals the power of God and the wisdom of God. Let's pick it up today in 1 Corinthians one twenty-five. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, he understood something in his wisdom. That what he did would be intentionally foolish to the world. And it would knock out all of the wisdom of the world. Knock out the idea that you can figure out God or figure out how to be saved. And he did that so that all of us would realize that all of us fell short. Of the glory of God. And to realize that this will be an affront to every naturally minded man. This would not, in a million years, if you went and, and if, you know, if they had no knowledge of the cross of Christ and you went to anybody in the world and you said to them, How do you think God should save us? And they would first of all say, What do you mean, say? I don't need to be saved from anything. I'm doing fine, right? That's the first hurdle. But then you think about, they would think about, I don't think in a million years they would ever come up with the idea that God would have a son and his son would become human and die on a cross. I don't think they'd ever come up with that. But that is God's wisdom and God's power. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now today's title is The Foolishness of God. And in this section of 1 Corinthians, from verse, chapter 1, verse 18 which we were studying last Sunday, all the way to 2.5, which is where we'll get to by the end of this message. We have the foolishness of God on display. And it's actually demonstrated in three different ways. We've already seen one of them. There are actually three paragraphs in this section from 1.18 to 2.5. And each one of those demonstrates the foolishness of God to the world in three different ways. Three different ways. We've already seen... That in chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, these present the foolishness of God in the word, in the word of the cross, the message preached itself. That displays the foolishness of God because it confounds the world and its wisdom. Now, continuing, however, we understand that we're going to now see why it is that God's foolishness is on display in three ways. All right. We heard about this one last Sunday, but God's foolishness, two more ways. All right, as we move forward in chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, that's where we'll pick it up today. God's foolishness is shown in the people he called to hear and believe the message. I chuckle at that because I always have to remind myself about that. That, you know, the idea that God would call us together in this 
congregation, that God would call individuals among us to, do, to be certain roles, um, he does that despite our foolishness, despite our inability, despite all the things about us that the world would take a look at and say, well, that's a motley crew. You know what I'm saying? Well, that's, that's, that's another way in which God demonstrates that his foolishness is wiser than men. We'll see that next. All right. Um, let's see why the world would think that God selects foolishly. Look at 1 Corinthians 1.26, the very next verse. For consider your calling, brethren. See, he shifts now. So far, he's been talking about the foolishness of the message preached, the foolishness of the cross as an affront to the world. It turns the world upside down. But now he pivots and he starts to point to you, to me. But in that, that generation, he was talking about the Corinthian church. Now remember, they were the ones that thought they were wise. They were boasting in things about man. Remember, they were boasting about who their guy was. I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. Remember that? That was a demonstration of their immaturity and of the fact that they still put stock in men when Paul had reached the point where he said, I put no confidence in the flesh. They hadn't gotten there yet. So he turns, after talking about how the world sees the message of the cross as foolishness, he then turns to them. He says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. Can you, can you imagine this message being preached today by one of these megachurches? That the first time he comes out and he says, Listen, you're not that wise. You, not many of you guys are mighty at all. There's nobody here that's noble, you know. That, uh, God levels with us, you know, even though m- many, many um, pastors and churches won't, especially today, related to the, to the cross and the message of the cross. They don't bring that up either very much. Consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen these people. God has chosen the foolish things of the world, all the things about us as believers that are foolishness. Don't don't force me to have to list them off this morning about us, but there's something about all of us. And by the way, if you don't think that, then you got a problem. You see, you'll be in the same blind category as the Corinthians who thought they were wise and powerful, even though they weren't. You know, it's like the emperor that has no clothes. You know, they were strutting around trying to let everybody think that they were so wise and that they, had, that they were among the most important, powerful people in Corinth. And they weren't for the most part. And it's the same thing today. God has chosen the foolish things. We're going to deal with this chosen, by the way, in a minute. Because I'm just going to give you a preview of coming attractions. This has nothing to do with salvation. All right. Nothing to do with it. Because why? He doesn't say God has chosen the foolish things of the world to believe or to be saved. What does he say? He has chosen the foolish things of the world. Why? To shame the wise. In other words, when he gathers together a group of foolish people, the reason he's done that is because there's also people who are so-called wise, and he's going to use these particular people to shame those particular people. The foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. When I am weak, then I am strong, Paul writes. When it looks to the world that uh, there's an ultimate weakness in you and me, and as we'll see in the Lord's Supper today, in Christ himself, when that is going on and the world looks at that, it says that's weakness. You know how often when we live in the Christian life, they call us weak? We forgive, oh, that's just weakness. No real man would do that. Real man would take his revenge, you see? Not only that, but many of us have weaknesses that are really things that are turnoffs to the world. You know, whatever those things might be. And yet he's chosen those things, those people, to shame the things that are strong. Why? Well, because he's going to turn this all around and say, you guys don't understand. You who think you're wise, you who think you're strong, you who think that you're noble... That has nothing to do with what really counts in life. That's what he's going to say. He's already said it. And the base things, verse 28 of the world, are despised. God has chosen the things that are not. Why? So that he may nullify the things that are. He may cancel out the things that people put all their stock in, that people brag about, that they boast about. Verse 29, why has he done all these things? Why has he chosen the weak to shame the wise? 
the, the, the foolish to shame the wise, the weak to shame the, those who are strong, the base and despised that things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, and this is why, so that no man may boast before God. No man may boast before God. No man ought to ever approach God thinking he's got any good thing about him that will help him in his petition. Hey, you know what, Lord? You saw all the people I witnessed to this week. you got to answer my special prayer. See what I'm saying? That's boasting. Stop and think about it. That's boasting before God. Hey, I've got something going on. And it's the same thing. Uh, many people in their cultures, they think that, you know, there's certain wise people and they've got, they're closer to God. You know what I'm saying? Like the Dalai Lama, I love picking on him, but... You know, most people who are, who are worshipful, and he's like the, he's the most uh, spiritual guy going, according to the world. You know, you see his picture on the front pages all the time, and people are like, oh, what did he say today, and all that. Well, they think he's closer to God than everybody else. A lot of people think the Pope is closer to God than anybody else, and so forth. The strong things of the world, the so-called wise people. He has chosen the opposite of those people to tell them a message, to kind of nullify, to kind of chop them down and bring them down to the sides, bring them to the foot of the cross where we all must be in order to be saved. So that no man may boast before God. But by God's doing, you see, you, many of whom are not wise or mighty, many of whom are foolish and weak and despised, He says, you are in Christ Jesus. And that makes all the difference. And we're going to see that that's the thing that the world cannot see. They have no idea that we have been placed into the creator of the universe. I don't know about you, but that sounds like power to me. And it is. I don't know about you, but that, 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 that understanding the things that have been revealed in the Word of God, that's knowledge, that's wisdom, not what the world peddles. You know, Mary, when she was praying to the Lord after she learned that she would give birth to the Savior, you know, she talked about this. She says that He has confounded the wise in their innermost thinking. And isn't that true? Isn't it true that the ones that think they're the smartest in the world, the PhDs and all those things, well, follow the story along. See where they end up. Try to read a physics book or a biology book today. Try to, try to see how the people that are favoring evolution try to bring that and explain it and argue for it, and they are more twisted at the end than they were at the beginning. Philosophers, it's the same thing. I mean, I've shared this before, but when I studied philosophy in college, I ended up solely more confused than when I started. You know, I thought it would be this discipline where they would help me to be wise, but instead it seemed like a lot of foolishness, because there was a lot of foolishness. And so he's saying, listen, no one can boast but what in themselves, but what you should be astounded by is the fact that God not only saved you, but he placed you in his son, Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus Christ is all the things for us that we could not be for ourselves. He, his cross is wisdom from God. His death on the cross made it possible for us to be declared righteous before God. It's his cross that is at work in our being sanctified. And our putting away the things of the, of, the, of the old man and putting on the things of the new man. That begins at the cross and redemption. The fact that our sins are forgiven at the cross. That's not how the world would say you had to deal with your weaknesses, of course. They would have a totally different way of doing that. Never would it occur to them that a Jewish carpenter 2,000 years ago that died on a Roman cross as a common criminal in the world's eyes would be the savior of the world, the creator of the universe, and the one who opens up the path to heaven and allows people to be declared righteous despite the fact that they were born sinners. So that it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Make that switch in your heart. Don't ever again try to boast in anything about yourself. Never. <laughs> but instead switch and say, there's so many things that I can boast in the Lord about. The things that he has done. The, the, the things that he has given us. His wisdom, his genius, his power. Boast in him. 
All right, so those are the first two paragraphs that show two ways in which God's foolishness is brought out to the world. Now, I have to keep saying that. I almost, it's in the Bible, so I'm going to say it, the foolishness of God. But I say it with a little bit of trembling because I know that in no possible way is he foolish. So I'm going to keep emphasizing it's according to how the world sees things. The third aspect, and this is in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. We see God's foolishness, the world does, in the preacher he called. In Paul. In Paul. The one he called, first paragraph, to preach the message of the cross. Second paragraph, to the foolish people. We're going to see that he looked foolish also in the world's eyes. The condition that he was in when he came to Corinth was looked foolishness. Ridiculous. How would God send a guy like that? To give us the good news. And the way he preached. He didn't, he didn't speak at all like the sophists and the philosophers and the great people at rhetoric and people that went around in Athens and Corinth and was so impressive in how they spoke. He didn't speak that way at all. That's not very impressive, God. You, can't you send us somebody, you know, more like uh, Apollos or, you know, Socrates or somebody like that? He didn't look the part, in other words. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brethren, notice another shift. The word of the cross, and then now you consider your calling, and then me, Paul says. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech. I didn't come with superiority of wisdom when I proclaimed to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was the subject that he came to bring to the people of Corinth, the message. That's all he wanted to talk about. That's all he wanted for people to understand was Jesus Christ and him crucified. He said, I was with you in weakness. You see, God chose not many wise, not many mighty. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And he, that was, first of all, in the in the congregation, but now Paul is saying, me too. I was with you in weakness. I was with you in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. They were not to persuade. What were they to do? To demonstrate. You see, you know the difference between persuasion and demonstration? In other words, I can persuade you to think that there's a Niagara Falls. I can do a great job and give you all kinds of history and facts. Or we can get on a plane and go see Niagara Falls. <laughs> all right, right? Well, and that's the difference between persuading and demonstrating. Which one do you think is more powerful ultimately? Demonstrating. Right. So, you know, uh, that's what he's saying here. He's saying, listen, you know what? My message, my preaching was not to persuade you with how wise I am, but to demonstrate the cross of Christ by the Spirit and by the power of God. So that your faith, and here's the, here's the wisdom of God. I don't want you to think about this. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men. Would not rest like a house built on sand. But instead, on the rock. On the power of God. Nothing can move you when you stand and your faith is in the, the rock, the power of God. That's why he did it. But again, three ways in which the foolishness of God to the world is demonstrated. The message itself, the cross. The hearers, the not many wise, noble, or mighty. And the messenger, Paul, feared, trembling, with a message that he did not deliver in persuasion, but in demonstration. But if you step back a minute, we've been talking about the foolishness of God. I want you to think about this for a minute. God actually allowed himself to look like a fool. Don't don't we like never want to do that in the world? You know, you want to be seen as a fool by the world. What a fool, you know. That's like the ultimate insult in a way. But God allowed him to be seen that way. He allowed himself to look like a fool in the eyes of the world. How could God do that? Think about it. He's everything but. He is wisdom and knowledge and holiness and justice and righteousness and love. And yet, when it came to saving us, he said, I am willing 
to be looked at as a fool. God, the fool in the eyes of the world. Why did he do that? One reason for us to save us from our sins. That's how far God was willing to go in order to save us from our sins. He allowed himself, the creator of the universe, to look foolish, to look like a fool in the eyes of the world. That's humbling to me. You know, we see stories about this in the Bible. You know, there's there's another guy who made himself look foolish. He was the prodigal father. I love to call him the prodigal father rather than the prodigal son because that's what that story is really about. It's about the father willing to run recklessly and have in the mud something that a noble Jew at the time would never do. And yet he went out there and and he hugged his son coming back. He looked foolish. He didn't care. The older brother certainly thought he was a fool, but he didn't care. His love for his son overwhelmed any insecurity he had. Jesus himself. It was, it was the foolishness of Jesus that allowed a prostitute to wash his feet in a Pharisee's house. <laughs> Think about that. I mean, uh, again, I come from a Roman Catholic background. I'm trying to picture like there's, they have great assemblies from time to time, like when a priest dies and that sort of thing, and they have, try to count how many bishops and cardinals are there. That's, the more important the guy was, the more bishops are there, you know what I'm saying? But I'm picturing like this thing about Jesus, and I'm picturing going to one of those events and bringing along a prostitute, and in the middle of it, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, she's going to bend down in front of me and have a bowl and wash my feet. And then I'm going to look up at the cardinal and say, what do you think of that? Because that's basically what Jesus did. He, you know, the Pharisees, those were the wise and you know, they, they had their act together. And he did that. See, he, he allowed himself to be, look like a fool in the eyes of the world also. And in both of those stories, I think you get it. Because both of those stories bring out the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the humility of God, if I could say that. But the world looks at that and says, ah, that God looks like a fool now. But here's the question. Who's the real fool? Who's the real fool in this picture? Is it a loving God who foolishly saves sinners? It'd be like, is it the man who, who, who says, you know what? I got to save this person. I got to swim in here. And I got to take off my clothes and go in the water. And the people are like, look at him. He's fat. He's overweight. You know, what's he doing? He's saving somebody's life. Willing to be made a fool. That's what God's all about. He's a loving God who foolishly saves sinners. You see, he's not a fool at all. Who's the real fool? The perishing world. They're perishing. Think about that. They're going along day by day mocking the things of God when every day they're a day closer to perishing. And I don't mean physical death. I mean the lake of fire. Who's the fool? Who's the fool? The one who lovingly rescues people out of that? Or the ones who say, you know what? I'm going where I want to go. Not realizing where, the, where they're really going. Who's the fool now? You see it? No. The people in the world who are perishing and cannot see, refuse to see that their only hope is the crucified Jesus. Those are the real fools. Alright, let's go back to... The first the paragraph number two, but it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You're already there, I know. Starting again in verse 26. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. But consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble. But God has chosen. He's made His choice. He has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. I suppose there are other ways he could have shamed the wise, but he chose the foolish people of the world to do it. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong in the world's eyes. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, God at work, You are in Christ Jesus. He's the one who became for us wisdom from God at the cross. He's the one that opened up the possibility for sinners to be declared righteous. He is the one whose death on the cross set the stage for the sanctification by the Spirit. He's the one who redeemed us. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
So here, when it says He has chosen the foolish and the weak and the base things, I want you to understand that what God does is that He chooses saints. Notice what I just said. He chooses saints. Why? Because they're already believers. This is not about choosing who believes and who doesn't. He looks at the saints and He chooses some for different purposes. God calls saints to fulfill His purpose for them. Not their purpose for them, but His. He has a purpose for every one of us as individuals and as a group. Why am I saying that? Well, please, when you read this passage, don't fall into that trap of thinking this is about salvation. Again, it's a simple test. Look at this passage. Does any of this say being saved, being justified? No, it says what? To shame the wise, to shame the things that are strong, to nullify the things that are. He chose this group for that purpose. It's not said here, for example, that God has chosen the foolish to be saved and the wise to go to the lake of fire. That was his choice. I'm going to say that. In fact, the Bible never says that God chose people or called people to go to the lake of fire. You will not find that anywhere in God's word. No, here's the truth. God chooses his saints, the ones who believe, He looks at them and he chooses them, each of them, them as a congregation for a great purpose. A great purpose. And unfortunately, sometimes people look at these passages and they imagine things are there that are not there. And it's so interesting in this case because in an earlier passage, what we studied a couple of weeks ago, it does talk about salvation. It does. This section doesn't. But before it did, what did it say? Look at 1 Corinthians 1.21. Just back up a few verses there. What did it say about salvation here, where it actually talks about it? God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached. It was not the people. He didn't say, I'm choosing the people to be saved. He said, I'm using the foolishness of the message preached to save. Ah, there's the subject. But to save who? Those who believe. That salvation doesn't matter. Rich, small, powerful, those who believe in the message of the cross are the ones that God saves. Eternal salvation. Those who believe. They could be wise. They could be foolish. Both are able to believe. They could be powerful or weak. Well-connected or disconnected. Simply believe. But after they believe, they are now saints. And now God calls them to fulfill his purpose for them. And you know something? As believers, as saints, every one of us, the whole body of Christ, shares a purpose. And that is of being conformed to the image of his son. We all share in that. By the way, that's another place where we read about predestined and calls. But for what? Even there, check it out. Romans 8, 28 to 30. doesn't say salvation. It says what? He chose them to be conformed to the image of his son. All right. It's important to see what the purposes are. But congregations and saints, you know, us as a group, us as individuals, we are also called to God's purposes here on earth. A purpose for us on earth. Purpose for you. Purpose for me. Spiritual gifts are like that. Right? He gives us a spiritual gift because he has a purpose for us to use that gift. He calls us to fulfill purposes on earth. And that's important to understand. Some are called to be evangelists, for example. Other congregations as a whole are given a great gift to be able to be a great witness to the power of prayer. Other congregations give a great witness and a spotlight to the preaching of the word of God. Others are called to show the love of God. They organize to serve the unfortunate, and so on. But let's back up again and think about the saints at Corinth and think about saints everywhere who are not wise or mighty or noble. Why did God choose this bunch of misfits? Why did he go to the island of misfit toys to find the ones who were going to shame the wise and the mighty? Why did he do that? Why has he chosen the foolish people the world considers trash, as a matter of fact? He did it to shame the worldly wise. That's their purpose. Why has God chosen the weak things of the world? To shame those whom the world celebrates as strong men. I dare say to you that whether we realize it or not, and the world certainly doesn't, 
that that little church in Pakistan is shaming the wise, the mighty, and the noble. How could God make that happen, right? I mean, these folks are surviving, surrounded by terrorism and hatred. These people are going out and they're building new buildings to have the people that graduated from their seminary. There's actually a seminary planted right there and they have graduates and they're now moving out and starting their own churches to shame the powerful. How you could never get that done? Mm-hmm. Yes, they did. Why has God chosen the lowest rung of society, those who are disregarded by the world, nobodies, people that they make, and you saw this in the video, go into sewers and clean them? Why has he chosen them? This is why. To bring to nothing those who think they're on top of the world. That's why. That's what they're doing. That's when God calls people like this. That's what he demonstrates. Those people who think they're on top of the world, they're really being brought to nothing. Look at Isaiah chapter four, verse thir- chapter forty, verse three. Isaiah chapter forty, verse three. To bring to nothing those who think they're on top of the world. This is what God's message does. This is what God's cho- choosing the weak does, the foolish does. Isaiah chapter forty, verse three. A voice is calling. Clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up. Let the fools be lifted up to shame the wise. Let every mountain and hill be made low. May the, the powerful and the mighty and the wise and those who think there's something are going to be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed when these things happen. All flesh will see it together. Someday everyone's going to see the wisdom of God and the power of God. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. And then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass. We're all the same. We're all sinners, all fallen short, all have to go to the foot of the cross. All flesh is grass. And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. Oh, it's beautiful for a while. But then the grass withers, the flower fades, and the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. That's humbling, isn't it? We think we're so much and such and such and all of that. But actually, we're grass. We're there for a little while, and then something happens, and we're not there anymore. Humanly speaking, wisdom of the world. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the message endures forever. The word of our God stands forever. What does God accomplish in all of this choosing and shaming and nullifying? What was the reason that God called these stragglers to be in this congregation at that time and place? It's really simple. Verse 29. Go back to 1 Corinthians now. Chapter 1, verse 29. God accomplished it. Whenever He calls somebody, His Word does not come back empty. He has a purpose for them. And you know what? His purpose will stand. You know, what he, if He has to do things to us in order for us to become the kind of people that will finally get on board with His purpose, He will do those things. He will do those things. His word does not come back to him void. Why? Why does he call stragglers, nobodies, to be in that particular congregation at that time and place, a place where there's all kinds of money being made, everyone was trying to outdo the other, they thought they were wise, they weren't far from Athens. Why did he call this group, this bunch, to be there in that congregation at that time and place? It's really simple. Verse 29. So that no man may boast before God. No man. Wise or foolish, doesn't matter. No boasting. No man. Mighty or weak, it doesn't matter. No man can boast. No man. Noble or nobody. No man may boast before God. The only thing left, after every mountain has been chopped down and every valley filled up and the grass is exposed as withering and the flower is going away, What's left? The only thing we're left to boast about 
is that by God's doing, we're in Christ Jesus. That's it. That's it. Verse 30, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Well, that may be the only thing we're left to boast about, but what a marvelous place to be at the end of all of this. We're in Christ. Yeah, we were foolish. Yeah, the, the message hit us between the eyes. Yeah, we, you know, we, was, we were looked at as weak by the, by the world. But then again, they were the real fools. And hopefully they came to the point where they were willing to understand that God was going to knock them down so that they would have to go to the foot of the cross. And it seems like we all lost everything. We have one thing, though, to boast about. That by God's doing, we are in Christ Jesus. His cross revealed God's wisdom. By his stripes we're healed. God made him who was sinless to bear our sins on the cross so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. God enabled our very sanctification. It all starts and it all comes from the cross. The reason that we're able to be, to be sanctified, to be more and more headed towards the fact that we're being conformed to the image of his son, to be able to lay down the things of the old man, put on the new man, is because God enabled all of that by crucifying our old man with Christ. It all goes back to the cross. And we've been redeemed by his blood. All of our sins forgiven because Christ is the one perfect sacrifice for our sins. Verse 30, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Why? So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I want to show you something. Paul, in verse 31, is citing Jeremiah. He's hearkening back to that weeping prophet who wept over, brought to grief over what was happening with the boasting and the blindness of the Jews in his generation. Please turn to Jeremiah, chapter 9, verse 23. Him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. These words were from Jeremiah in chapter 9. I want you to see why Paul chose this particular passage. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. We are in Christ Jesus. He's become all of these things. The wisdom from God, the righteousness from God, sanctification, redemption. So just as it is written, written where? Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Verse 23. Jeremiah 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord. Says the Lord. What does he say? Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Not let a mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, Boast of this. Notice this. That he understands and knows me. I, I dare ask the question. Do you? Do you understand and know God? Do you understand how it is the wisdom of God that put his son on that cross? Do, do you understand that why he has chosen people who are weak and, and not, not seem as anything by the world? Don't boast of anything about yourself. Boast that you understand and know God. He says, I am the Lord who exercises grace, loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. I delight in these things, declares the Lord. And when we understand and know God, we will delight in these things also. The grace of God, his justice, his righteousness on earth. So as foolish as it may appear to the world, God has chosen the weak the foolish, the dregs of society to shame and cancel out the grandeur of the great and powerful. In other words, when it was time to choose his team, he chose the most incompetent, unruly, clueless, and unathletic bunch that he could find. You know how you choose sides in the playground? That's what he chose. Incompetent, unruly, clueless, unathletic. And what happened? The world scoffed at him. They said something like, these people don't even belong in the same field with us. We're ashamed that they're even on the same field as us. 
Well, surprise world, because they have something that you don't, and it's the very thing that everybody needs, and you don't have it, the power of God. So you look at that field and watch them shock the world. Watch when it happens. Why? Because the power of God is behind it. Nothing's going to stop the power of God. He's turned the world upside down. But how do you and I fit into this picture? You know, we've, we've looked at the message. We've looked at that, those saints at that time. Well, how do we fit in that picture? How are we today here fit in that? Well, of course, there's a number of ways, and we could, we could see all of them, but I want to just pick a couple. The first one is people make decisions about being part of a congregation. And the question is, on what basis? And I'm here to tell you that don't ever pick a member, become a member of a congregation because it's full of wise, intelligent, rich, prominent, or powerful people. The people that can do something for you. Don't. On the other hand, don't look down your nose at people, at churches that are full of weak, powerless people. Foolish, or unintelligent, or irrational people. People with no connections, no prospects. People that can't give you a thing. God calls such people. And he calls them so that he can accomplish great things in them. And I don't know about you, but that's where I want to be. I want to be with the people. Well, they may be unintelligent. They may be powerless. They may be fools. They may be irrational. They may have no connections. But God is accomplishing great things in them. Why? (laughs) Here's why. They have no wisdom of their own. So what do they got to do? They got to soak up God's wisdom. Right? As long as you think you got wisdom of your own, you don't really need any help. But as soon as you understand, I really have no wisdom of my own. Now you got to soak up God's. They have no power of their own, so they have to rely on God's power. They have no one telling them how great they are. What do they do? They happily take their identity from who they are in Christ. That's how God does powerful, mighty, wise things through them. Because he lets, they let him work through them. They rely on him totally to come through for them. Here's another lesson. Don't freak out when you finally realize that you too have been a fool in God's eyes. Don't freak out. It's a good sign, actually. Because it's by the foolishness of the message that people are led to believe. So don't freak out when you finally realize, you know what, I've been such a fool in God's eyes. The only eyes that matter. On the other hand, don't ever think that being weak means you're failing God. No, you're not. And finally, and this is a tough one, but don't even strive to be well-known. Even in Christian circles. A lot of people think that you're exempt from being arrogant because you want to be well-known in Christian circles. You know, you're still writing a book that you want everybody to buy, but it's a Christian book. See what I'm saying? You want to be the center of attention and have all kinds of people fawning over you. And you know that in the world that would be something that you shouldn't do, but I'm going to go in the church and do it. Don't. Don't strive to be well-known even in Christian circles. All right, let's close up. Look at verse chapter 2, verse 1. I have to move through this quickly to get to the Lord's Supper, so I'm kind of putting this in in fourth gear. Chapter 2, verse 1. And when I came to you, brethren, Paul came. Authentic preachers of the gospel still coming. I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom. I didn't have all this advanced terminology that only 2% of the people understand. You know, I said this before. When you talk about God, when I preach, I think about, for example, a day laborer in Mexico. Can he understand what I'm saying? If he can't, then there's something wrong with how I'm saying it. Yeah. He said, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom. You know, people, a lot of pastors quote things in the world like, as so-and-so said in the 1800s, you know. What are they doing? They're just showing off. Superiority of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I was determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. 
so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. He didn't come with a commanding voice or great speaking skills or with the rehearsed message so people would say, what a great orator he is. No, he didn't come to persuade anybody. (coughs) He came to demonstrate God's power to everybody. That's what he came to do. He had a message. Now, see, when he said uh, the, the, the power of the Spirit, the demonstration of the Spirit, he wasn't, in this case, he wasn't even talking about, you know, miracles and tongues and all of that. He was talking, he's still talking about a message. But it is a message where the words came from the Spirit, not from his intellect. Paul arrived exhausted. Picture this. We're having a great Bible conference. We're going to invite people all over the country. And when we're, when we're beginning, he said, now coming up the aisle is our main speaker. And he's like exhausted. Oh, my God. He's weak. He's trembling as he comes on the aisle. But he had seen and heard something earth shattering. And he came to show it to them. Now, he had seen it because it had taken everything from him that he used to treasure. Of course, he was exhausted and weak and trembling. And yet it gave him everything he ever needed. It changed everything. And now he is living in it. And that's what happens sometimes when you live in the message of the cross. Sometimes you're going to look foolish. You're going to be weak. You're going to be exhausted. You might be trembling. Trembling is a good thing at times. You know that song, Were You There? When, I, when they crucified my Lord sometimes. It brings me to trembling. That's okay. That's what happened. He was crucified with Christ. He no longer lived. And by the way, he came to understand this. These weren't words. These weren't doctrines. This was his life now. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I live now, I live by faith in Christ. He doesn't live by his own intelligence anymore. He isn't living by the impressiveness of the words. He's living by faith in Christ. Nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you today that your word has been preached. We thank you today that your spirit is doing his work in our lives and in the messages. We thank you most of all, Father, that this all is possible because of the death of your son on the cross and his resurrection three days later. And now we're going to bring into remembrance the death of the Lord. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to keep our mind on Jesus. We're not going to think about ourselves. And that's the way you want it to be. So please help us by the Spirit to be those people today. We ask it in Christ's name, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. All right, I'd like to invite the ushers forward now so that you could prepare the Lord's Supper by passing out the communion elements. Not many wise. Not many mighty, not many noble. In the eyes of the world, Jesus was none of those things. They said he had a demon. He was crucified in weakness. He died next to two common criminals. And they ridiculed him as the carpenter's son. They placed a placard on his cross that read, in part, King of the Jews. They shamed him and tortured him, and they blotted him out of existence on the cross, so they thought. But they were blind. They they didn't see the wisdom, God's wisdom at the cross. None of the rulers of the age understands it, for if they did, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. You see, it's things that I hasn't seen. When we look at the cross, the things that we see because of the Spirit opening our eyes, Ear hasn't heard, nor has it entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. They were the rulers of the age, and yet they didn't understand what they were doing. That's why our Lord didn't even condemn them on the cross. He asked his Father to forgive them. Isaiah 53, 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot. Not a powerful tree, but a tender shoot. Like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. No appearance that we should be attracted to him. Not mighty, not noble. 
He was despised. He was forsaken of men. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. But surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his stripes we're healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. What a noble thing to do. And what strength he had to endure all that suffering. What presence of mind he possessed to refuse the painkillers and to hold everything in the universe together as he died in agony on the cross. He looked weak on the cross, but he was strong. He looked foolish, but actually he had the most amazing mind in the universe. He looked as useless as a worm. But in fact, this Jesus really is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the most noble, loving person ever. This is our Lord and Savior. And this is why we gather together on the first Sunday of the month to proclaim his death. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We will never really understand all the love, all the righteousness and justice that you poured out when you poured it it on your Son, our sins. May it humble us, Father. May it realize that that's what we're here for now is to live as people of the cross understand what happened there for us. Let other people know about it. And also, Father, help us to be aware of those around us who are suffering, who are weak, who look foolish, look down upon. To understand that these are the people that you pick and choose to shame the wise and the mighty. And we ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We are starting a new series in our Thursday night Bible study. Beginning this week, Thursday, April 11th, we'll be have a new series on the subject of prayer. Prayer. It's so important. Prayer is where we always turn. Turn first whenever we're facing something in life or wherever we want something for somebody. I do want to point out that we, um, our giving policy is from the New Testament. That means we don't tithe, we don't embarrass people into giving or anything like that. All right? It is to be freely done, and uh, when the Lord puts it on your heart to do so. Because believe it or not, we actually do have bills, and we have things we have to pay. But we want you to freely do it. We don't want you to be under coercion. All right? Because of that, we make it available for you to give, but not put a spotlight on you. All right? So there's a box in the back, you can do that, put it in there. You can also um, mail it to us. We've got envelopes that have the address. Okay. All right. I think that's it. One other thing. If uh, you have any questions about today's message, 
I invite you to speak with me after the service. I'll be here in front for a little while. And uh, never, never forget the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's son was born of a woman. And he went to a cross to die. And all of our sins were upon him. And then God raised him from the dead three days later. Whoever believes that message will never perish, but has eternal life. Let's close. Father, we thank you for the gospel. At the end, we thank you for the fact that we now have good news to preach to the world. The death and resurrection of your son. How your grace was on display and your grace pours out. And how you save us by grace through faith. And we thank you for these wonderful things. Most of all, we just thank you once again for your son, Jesus Christ. We ask all of this in the name of the, of the Lord Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen. You're dismissed, and have a great day, and we'll see you on Thursday.